This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon and uh, thank you uh, everybody for coming along uh, to this afternoon's lecture. My name's Kate Allen, I'm Director of Amnesty International here in the UK and it is my pleasure to uh, be chairing uh, this afternoon's event and to be introducing uh, Philippe Sands to you. Uh, we at Amnesty have a long um, association with the Book Festival here at, um, in Edinburgh uh, and we are delighted to have that association. Uh, for us at Amnesty, freedom of expression is an absolutely fundamental uh, right and it's one of those rights that allows us then to fight for and get those other rights and it is extraordinary to think that in our uh, annual report this year, 2010, we have documented in 94 countries around the world where freedom of expression is curtailed or uh, stopped completely. Uh, and where what we're doing today would be illegal, where we would be risking uh, our liberty, if not our lives, for gathering in this way to, uh, to discuss, to challenge, to find remedies to the injustices uh, that we are all concerned about. So uh, it is with a great uh, delight that uh, we are here as Amnesty at the festival. And I am also absolutely delighted to be introducing um, Philippe Sands. Uh, Philippe um, is a QC. He's been Professor of Law at University College London since 2002. He participated in the negotiations of the 1992 Climate Change uh, Convention and the 1998 Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. He's a practicing barrister at Matrix Chambers and has been involved in leading cases before English and international courts, including cases that are very close to Amnesty's heart. So uh, the uh, cases of Senator Augusto Pinochet, uh, the Guantanamo detainees, and our own detainees held in the UK at Belmarsh Prison. So these are campaigns that Amnesty has fought, and we have been delighted to fight them uh, with Philippe uh, as uh, uh, such a brilliant uh, advocate. Philippe is going to be talking about his book, Torture Team, uh, but I think he might stray from uh, the US and he might say one or two things about one or two British politicians uh, as well. And I also want to mention the torture memos, Rationalising the Unthinkable, which Philippe has uh, an introduction to, uh, and the author is David Cole. These are two uh, brilliant books uh, that um, uh, you will find uh, here. Uh, so I will now uh, ask... Philippe to uh, speak to us. He is going to speak for about half an hour and then we'll take questions. So, Philippe. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kate. Thank you to the uh, organisers of the festival. It's the third time I've had the privilege of appearing at the festival. I love coming to Edinburgh. It's my favourite British city and I always come up with my children and see lots of shows over the weekend or so that I'm here, and today is no different. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the circumstances in which I came to write the book and how I went about writing it. So it's a more personal story of 
coming to grips with the emerging picture as we came to understand it in 2003 of the return of torture as perpetrated by those governments with which we are closest. And I want to also mention uh, the book that David Cole has put together, which he kindly invited me to write the foreword, because it's a sort of parallel uh, US author to my own uh, effort. And I've worked very closely with David uh, over the last past few years. He's an American academic at Georgetown uh, Law School and uh, has spent extensive time in Britain. And we have been comparing notes and activities. Uh, I suppose my life changed very dramatically after September the 11th. I happened to have been in New York on September the 11th. I was teaching at New York University Law School. I was half a mile from the World Trade Center, was present for the whole events. It was really a very shocking, very shocking day. And the consequences, I think, have stayed at a personal level for, well, ever since. I don't think you spend a day like that and not uh, and are not affected by such an event happening uh, so, so close. I, and, and I can still, I still have uh, very much in my mind the smell that lasted in the days that followed. So the events of 9-11, the challenge that it posed, is something I was acutely aware of. What I had not expected was the response of the United Kingdom and the United States. And I first addressed that uh, in 2005 in a book that I'd written called Lawless World, which looked at, more broadly, the way in which the set of rules put in place by the United States, the United Kingdom, and a host of other countries in the period after the Second World War had been subverted in particular, but not exclusively, as a result of the events on September the 11th. And in particular, I became very close to the issues concerning the circumstances in which the British Attorney General, Peter Goldsmith, had uh, been caused to change his mind at the very last moment on the legality of the war in the United Kingdom. And that was essentially the main subject of Lawless World. My editor at Penguin and my wonderful agent, Jill Coleridge, thought that I ought to follow that up by looking in more detail at one of the chapters in that book, which was on Guantanamo. And they had noticed, both of them, that one of the themes I was particularly interested in was the question of the responsibility of professionals at such moments, and in particular, the responsibility of lawyers. I'm a lawyer, I practice as a lawyer, I teach as a lawyer, I do a lot of work for a lot of governments around the world. Some are governments I'm very proud to be associated with. Some are governments that I'm not so proud uh, to be associated with. But as a professional barrister, I carry out my work in a professional way. And I often find myself in a situation in which a president or a foreign minister or a government legal advisor will say, yes, well, your advice is all well and good, but actually this is what we want to do. Can you help us do it? That's what clients do. You do it in relation to house purchases. You do it in relation to anything. That's what lawyers get asked to do. And very often, it doesn't cause a problem. You're able to find a way within the law. But there is something that cuts in as a lawyer that causes you to exercise independent judgment and scrutiny. And I feel that particularly through my bar rules of professional conduct. And often, you will say, well, you know, I can take it this far, but I'm afraid there is a line, and that line cannot 
be crossed. And if you want to cross that line, I'm afraid I'm not the person who can be associated with that issue. Now, it's a theme that we all come across. What are the limits of our own ability to contribute to something on which we may have mixed views? When you're a lawyer, that responsibility becomes particularly acute. Because lawyers, I believe, have ultimately a responsibility not exclusively to their client, but to the system of justice and to the rule of law more generally. And so one of the things that had intrigued me in writing Lawless World, and I touch on it in the chapter on Guantanamo, is the circumstances in which the lawyers in the United States had apparently written legal memoranda which had authorized torture. The United States is not a state that generally engages in torture. It has a record which is far from impeccable. But if you go back in history, you won't find bits of paper. You won't find legal advices. You won't find government decisions authorizing techniques of interrogation that amount to torture. And I explored that in Lawless World, but I wanted to look in more detail at what exactly had happened. And uh, I, in particular, wanted to go beyond the papers and the documents. Lawless World was mostly written, apart from the Goldsmith chapter, on the basis of documents that were in the public domain. I didn't go ferreting around looking for other documents. I didn't go interviewing people. And I thought, that's what I'll do. What I'll do is I will find the lawyers and I will talk to them. It's important to remember that at this point, when I started on this 2004, 2005, the narrative was that the abuse in the United States was the result of the actions of a few bad eggs. You all remember the pictures of Abu Ghraib. You remember the explanations that were given. This was some bad people down at Guantanamo, uh, down at Abu Ghraib, and it had nothing to do with the policies of the administration of President Bush. There was a problem with that argument on its face because by then, mid-2004, a number of documents had been made public in which lawyers had apparently authorized techniques of interrogation which on their face were inconsistent with the Geneva Conventions and inconsistent with the obligation not to torture. Authorizing waterboarding, for example, authorizing extended sleep deprivation, uh, hooding and various other uh, forms of treatment which on my account and I think certainly on Kate's account and I think any international lawyer is going to say look you just can't do that the Geneva Conventions do not allow you to do that some of this amounts to torture some of it is inhuman degrading treatment so this I, troubled me what were these documents about and in lawless world I simply recounted the uh, stories that the Bush administration and the British government to a certain extent had said these memos had nothing to do with actual policy and decisions. They were stargazing exercises they were never relied upon. That was the official story in 2004 and 2005. So what I decided to do was focus on one particular set of interrogation techniques used on a detainee at Guantanamo, a man by the name of Mohammed Al-Qahtani, a Saudi Arabian national, thought to be the 20th hijacker. And there were a number of documents that had emerged in relation to certain techniques of interrogation that were used on him that, in my view, amounted to torture, that were used between November 2002 and January 2003. 
And the documents that had emerged into the public domain gave the impression that this had started with the folks down at Guantanamo and had made its way up. And once it reached the top, approval was given. As a barrister, as a litigating barrister who appears in court, that narrative struck me as counterintuitive. And in particular, when I watched the video of the two Bush administration lawyers who spun that story, President Bush's White House counsel, Alberto Gonzalez, and uh, the general counsel at the Department of Defense, William J. Haynes, Mr. Rumsfeld's lawyer, you could smell they were acting as advocates. They were not giving a story which resonated as being a true story. So I thought I'd actually go and find all the people who'd signed off on the techniques of interrogation. Now, these were not individuals who were, or even today are, household names, although in the legal community they are now very well known and very notorious. There were a number of individuals involved, and none of them had spoken about all of these issues. And I write about them in considerable detail in the book. It's an uncovering of the true story. I knew that I had to persuade one of them to talk to me and tell me the story they had gone through, and that once one person had spoken to me, I'd be able to go to the next person and say, this is what X said. X has implicated you or has told a story that raises issues about what you did. What's your response to that? And the first difficulty was to find someone who talked to me, because I live in London, I do go quite regularly to the United States for cases, and so I would do it on the side. I had a very good friend, still have a very good friend, who works in the US State Department. And one thing you need to understand is that neither the State Department nor the US military are really implicated by this whole story. They, in general, all tried to do the right thing and were circumvented. A good friend of mine at the State Department said, actually, I know the lawyer who was down at Guantanamo when all this happened, a woman by the name of Diane Beaver, who was a sort of late 40s, early 50s, not particularly successful lawyer who had made it to the job of staff judge advocate at Guantanamo. And she had been flown down there, like no one knew this at the time, in June 2002. So my friend Kate said, I'll see if she wants to speak to you. And it took six months to persuade her to take my phone call, and another three months to persuade her to meet with me. Eventually, we built up a very good and trusting relationship that I hope I have respected. And she told me her story, which had, of course, never been made public. And the heart of the book really is the story of Diane Beaver. And in short, her story is she arrives down at Guantanamo. After a few weeks, they discover they've got a detainee, <coughs> detainee 063, Mohammed Al-Qahtani. The traditional lawful techniques of interrogation haven't produced anything from him. And there's pressure from on top to get results. And the pressure from on top is coming from the highest levels. How did she know that, I asked. She said, well, as you know, Philip, the memo that I first wrote requesting 
support for new techniques of interrogation was signed on the 11th of October 2002. On the 25th of September 2002, she told me, an executive jet arrived at the airstrip at Guantanamo and off the plane came Alberto Gonzalez, counsel to the President of the United States, David Addington, counsel to the Vice President of the United States, John Rizzo, counsel to the Central Intelligence Agency, and the legal advisor to Donald Rumsfeld, Jim Haynes, who I've already mentioned. Now, pause for a moment. Diane Beaver says to me, you can imagine my reaction to these four gentlemen coming to see me and my boss, Mike Dunlavy, the commander, the commander of that camp. These are the four most powerful, important lawyers in the United States. They've come down to Guantanamo. They want to talk about interrogation techniques. They want to watch an interrogation. They ask questions about Detainee 063, and David Addington, Mr. Cheney's lawyer, leaves with the words, I paraphrase, we support you to do what needs to be done. Now, you are Diane Beaver, a female, and I think it's no coincidence that they chose a female in that situation, feels herself to be under a certain degree of pressure, but also to have been given a green light by some pretty powerful individuals. She described to me also lots of other things that were interesting. She described to me how there were people in the room when they were elaborating the techniques of interrogation who she didn't really know where they came from. I subsequently did more research and found that they had come uh, indirectly from the Defense Department, from Mr. Rumsfeld's uh, colleagues and groups of people. She told me about the role of the television program 24 in the work that they were doing, which was beamed directly into Guantanamo uh, at exactly that time. The second series opened in October 2002 as they were preparing to move to enhanced interrogation techniques, as they call it, torture, as I call it. And the very first series, uh, the, second, the very first episode of the second series opens with someone being tortured and torture works. And they're all watching this. And she describes to me that this had a profound effect, supporting them in essence, in opening the doors in this direction. From Diane Beaver, I then ch chased the story all the way up to the very top and met with every lawyer involved in the process who was relevant to the interrogation and torture of Mohammed Al-Qahtani. I met with Mike Dunlavy, her boss, who is now a serving judge in Erie, Pennsylvania. I met General Hill, who is the commander of United States Southern Command. I met General Myers, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I met Jim Haynes, who was Mr. Rumsfeld's lawyer. I met Doug Fyth, who was the head of policy at the Department of Defense. And the narrative that emerged from all of this was a very, very clear, uncontested, unambiguous narrative. It had come from the top. It had been based on the legal memos that David Cole has written about, which were authored in the Department of Justice and which includes such shocking memos as one authored by John Yoo and Jay Bybee, Jay Bybee now shockingly being a federal judge in the Ninth Circuit in the United States, 
concluding that the applicable definition of torture to be used in determining whether individuals are being tortured is that the pain to amount to torture must be equivalent to that which is felt upon death or serious organ failure. Anything short of that is not torture, it's fine, you can basically do it. It's outside of the legal prohibitions. Stunning piece of legal advice. Diane Beaver relied upon that, although she was not aware that she was relying upon that. So it came from the top, it was based on Justice Department legal advice uh, in the White House, and it was subject to the most intense pressures possible. It then spread. It spread to Abu Ghraib. How do I know it spread to Abu Ghraib? Well, it's now been determined by the United States Department of Defense that it spread from Guantanamo to Abu Ghraib. But Diane Beaver, the lawyer with whom I'd spoken, was the lawyer who accompanied Major General Jeffrey Miller from Guantanamo to Abu Ghraib and Baghdad in August 2003 to provide advice on new techniques of interrogation. All of the memos that I write about that came from Guantanamo in October, November, December 2002 were communicated over to Baghdad and to Abu Ghraib and they were relied upon. On the 14th of September 2003, the regulations at Guant at, in Baghdad and at Abu Ghraib were changed. Hooding was permitted, sleep deprivation was permitted, the use of dogs was permitted, forced nudity was permitted. All the things we've seen in the pictures the United States has banned since 1949 and before, all of a sudden, on the 14th of September 2003, they become permissible. The Abu Ghraib photographs only emerged in April 2004, but when were they taken? They were taken in October 2003, absolutely contemporaneous. And lest we think that this is something that is limited to the United States, Many of you in the room will be aware of the allegations of British involvement in detainee abuse in Iraq. And the most notorious example is the case for which Colonel Mendonca, you may recall, was court-martialed involving the abuse and deaths of detainees at Basra. When did that take place? Astonishingly, the interrogations that led to those abuses and deaths took place on the 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th of September 2003, at exactly the same moment that the interrogation practices changed in uh, Abu Ghraib and in Baghdad on the United States side. And I established, coincidentally, through a colleague in my barrister's chambers who happened to be working on the Mendonca case, that in the transcript involving the court-martial of Colonel Mendonca and six others, was evidence that there had been communications at exactly that time between the British lawyers, military lawyers, and the Americans in Baghdad, indicating that there had been a migration from Guantanamo to Abu Ghraib to Basra. Against that background, the story that emerges is one that's now, I think, pretty familiar. It is one that is replaced the official story. It's not the only story. It runs alongside the issues of extraordinary rendition, 
the transfer of individuals from places to be tortured. And it comes right home to our own door and to our own politicians in a very real sense. You will have read in the media uh, about cases that Kate Allen and Amnesty have been involved in, that I have been involved in as a barrister, and I want to respect my professional obligations and not get into too much detail about issues that are, uh, I've been involved in as a barrister, but much of it is in the public domain. One case that has become notorious is the case of Binyam Mohammed, uh, the detainee who was apprehended in Pakistan in 2002, who was then transferred um, to Morocco and then on to uh, Guantanamo and who has made very serious allegations uh, of torture. I acted for him in some of the British proceedings. I want to mention that. It's important to declare that. In the course of one of those proceedings, colourable evidence emerged on the basis of his testimony that he'd been interviewed by British intelligence officers. And in the course of a cross-examination of an MI5 intelligence officer who's only been referred to as Witness B, Witness B, under cross-examination by my co-counsel, Dinah Rose, said, and it's publicly available, public information, everything he did was authorized by his line manager, by senior management at MI5, by uh, the lawyers at MI5, and then he added, by the government. Now, he didn't explain what he meant by the government. You need to understand that against the background of prior problems, a new piece of legislation was adopted in this country in 1994, the Intelligence Services Act, which requires sign-off from senior government ministers for certain types of activity. And that would include this kind of activity precisely to protect civil servants, intelligence officers, from allegations that they're off on a frolic and they've been engaged in unauthorized activities. The information that emerged in that case was passed by the judges to the Home Secretary because they were concerned that the information gave rise to colorable evidence that British officials may have been complicit in torture. The judges plainly believed that Binyam Mohammed was tortured. And this is what has eventually led now to the establishment, I deeply regret, not by the Labour government, as should have happened, but by the Conservative Lib Dem government of a judicial inquiry to get to the bottom of what went on. But the evidence that has already emerged makes it very clear, hard to conclude otherwise than that, at the time that British intelligence officers, who are now subject to criminal investigation, were sent off to Pakistan to interview Binyam Mohammed, they knew that he had been tortured. And that gives rise to the allegation, the colourable, clear allegation, that there is a degree of complicity in this torture. And that raises the question, who is responsible for that complicity in torture. I've mentioned the cross-examination of Witness B, and I've been very troubled personally by the suggestion that the government was involved. I, I went off on another sort of individual initiative, 
and through uh, a, a neighbor uh, who, who is um, well connected in those circles, I was introduced to a senior retired intelligence officer from MI6. I wanted to know how it worked when a British intelligence officer went abroad in 2002. How might it work? And he explained to me that in those circumstances, the intelligence officer would have been subject to the uh, regulations and a policy approved by the then Home Secretary, who was responsible for MI5, that would have been David Blunkett, that because it involved an overseas operation in Karachi, it would have had to also have been approved by the then Foreign Secretary responsible for MI6, that would have been Jack Straw. And at that point in the conversation, unprompted, the individual said to me, and Philippe, if you were to say to me, or ask me, was number 10 involved, I would say to you, you're not barking up the wrong tree. So on the basis of my involvement in all of this, now over many years, both in a professional capacity and through the books that I've been written, it seems pretty clear to me that the story in the United States is mirrored, the story that I've written about, is mirrored in the United Kingdom. Now, whether the judicial inquiry gets to grips with that or not is unclear, and we don't want to prejudge the outcome of a judicial inquiry that hasn't yet begun. But I have to say I was pretty surprised to be sent yesterday the comments of uh, David Miliband uh, to The Independent on Sunday that are going to appear tomorrow on this whole saga. David Miliband became Foreign Secretary in the summer of 2007. I think he should have done, and I've said publicly before, what he should have done then is what William Hague did, namely to say there's colourable evidence, as there was already in the summer of 2007, of wrongdoing. We are going to get to the bottom of what happened and we are going to sort out who was responsible if there was wrongdoing. David Miliband did not do that. David Miliband instead engaged in a long series of court cases, all of which he lost on the relevant issues, which, as you know, ultimately led to a series of stinging judgments from actually rather conservative judges who were appalled by what they had seen and who ordered the disclosure of information that essentially concluded that Binyam Mohammed had been tortured and that there had been knowledge by British officials that that had happened at the time the British involved themselves in his interviewing and in his questioning. And so that raises, as in my book Torture Team, a fundamental question of responsibility and accountability. Who is responsible? Who is accountable? And I think that causes us, and this brings us into a discussion with Amnesty and with others who have perhaps different, a range of different views on the right balance when there have been uh, colourable allegations of wrongdoing, the right balance between, on the one hand, the need to establish the truth, and on the other hand, the desire to apply the criminal law and do justice through criminal penalties for those who are involved and responsible. And 
there's an important debate to be had that has been had in many other parts of the world, in South Africa, after apartheid changed uh, and the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In Chile, after um, then President Pinochet stepped down, how do you achieve a balance between finding out what happened and who ordered what, on the, on the one hand, which requires the creation of conditions in which people want to talk and tell their story, but they want to do so in circumstances in which they're not going to incriminate themselves and then be subject to criminal investigation and proceedings. And so the new government has essentially said, we will have this judicial inquiry, but we first need to sort out the ongoing criminal investigations and the civil actions being brought by former detainees I think for the perfectly understandable reason that it's going to be impossible to imagine circumstances in which any individual who has detailed knowledge of these matters in those cases that are pending is going to voluntarily submit themselves to a judicial inquiry in circumstances in which they may implicate themselves and give rise to criminal proceedings against themselves. So this, it seems to me, is an absolutely crucial and big issue. But at the heart of the whole issue, is the question of individual responsibility and accountability. And when Mr. Blair's memoir comes out this week, I invite you to read those parts of it, if indeed he treats any of it at all, that deals with his personal involvement in the decisions concerning interrogation techniques to which the United Kingdom seems to have been party in the period of his tenure as premiership. My prediction is it will be skirted over completely and he will not have done the minimum necessary, as he has not done in relation to Iraq, to enable us to understand the truth about what happened. Thank you very much. I'm sure there are going to be questions. Let me let me just kick off, um, Philippe. It's like what you know, reading a, a a story of kind of insidious moral corruption. You know, as as it seeps through uh, lawyers, politicians. Did you come across anybody who stood up and said this is wrong? Many, many, many people, uh, and I describe it in the book. I mean. It's not, a, it's not a, a, a complete horror tale where everyone you meet, I mean, as you, you'll have seen in the book, I'm even, I even end up quite sympathetic to Diane Beaver, who in a curious way is you know, at the apex of the whole story, because it's clear that she was not up to the task and should never have been put in the position of being asked to sign off on these things. She had no training in the Geneva Convention. She was flown in from a sort of an administrative position and really did not have the expertise. But as I went around, I met um, extraordinarily a, a lot of very, very wonderful people in the military. What I uncovered was that after we left Diane Beaver, it went from her to Mike Dunlavey, Major General Dunlavey. From Dunlavey it went to General Hill, who expressed serious concerns and said, this has got to be lawyered by the Justice Department. From Dunlavey, it went to um, General Myers, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is a pretty senior position, I mean, most powerful military man in the United States after the president. And from Myers, I learned what had happened. Myers had a lawyer, Jane Dalton. As soon as he got this 
hot potato, as he described it to me. He passed it on to Jane Dalton. And Jane Dalton did what she was supposed to do. She sent it to the lawyers from the four services, Air Force, Navy, Army, Marines. And she did that, I think, on the 2nd or 3rd of November 2002. Within 48 hours, all four services had written back and said, we can't do this. This is criminal. This may be torture. This will expose us to domestic criminal liability. This will expose us to problems with the International Criminal Court, which they're not even parties to. We cannot do this. All of that material was not made available to me. It was described to me by lawyers, but I didn't get my hands on the material. It subsequently become publicly available, and David's book contains um, many examples uh, of it. Short, very fascinating memos, all just saying, absolutely not. We will have nothing to do with this. So Jane Dalton then sends the material to the uh, lawyer for Mr. Rumsfeld, Jim Haynes, who I think is, in a sense, the real, the real weak link in this whole story. What does Jim Haynes do? Jim Haynes tells Jane Dalton to stop her review, to stop sending her these documents, to take the documents back. He will deal with it personally himself. The next thing that happens is that he drafts a memo for Mr. Rumsfeld, that memo is now widely available, suggesting 18 techniques of interrogation, 15 of which he recommends approval for blanket use, dogs, nudity, I mean, really, really bad stuff, totally inconsistent with the Geneva Conventions, three to be left for use on a case-by-case -case basis, including waterboarding, passes it to Mr. Rumsfeld on the 27th of November, on the 2nd of December, Mr. Rumsfeld signs it and writes famously on it, why is standing limited to four hours when I stand for eight to 10 hours a day? Which has been taken by some people as a signal, you can go beyond what I've authorized. All of the military involved in that were absolutely um, squeaky clean and tried to do the right thing and were silenced and did not know that these techniques were then approved. The whole story was then blown wide open by a man called Alberto Mora, M-O-R-A, who emerges as a real hero in all of this. He was Bush's general counsel of the Navy. Complaints reached him in December and January that this, these techniques were being used, and he personally intervened with Rumsfeld and said, this has got to stop on Al-Qahtani. You cannot do this. I will go public uh, if this continues. And the techniques on Al-Qahtani stopped. What Mora did not know was that they had migrated in the meantime to other places. So uh, there are a lot of people uh, in this story who try to do the right thing. It's a small, very small group of people. Okay. Can I see some hands for questions? We have a mic. Okay, we have, um, we'll take the, the, the gentleman here and then there's a uh, gentleman. If you, if you could um, pass the microphone over here afterwards. We'll take two questions together if that's okay, sure. Philippe. Sure. Uh, you, you talked a lot um, about the kind of hidden hands of power going on underneath, and you also mentioned 24 and how 24 was pumped in to the prisons just that all this thing was going on. At the risk of sounding like a conspiracy theorist, do you think that was deliberate? Do you think that there was people working within Hollywood to bring that forward, or do you think Hollywood was just reacting to what was going on in society at the time? Okay. If you'd like to pass the microphone along to the middle here, we'll have another question and then... You said that um, the uh, Abu Ghraib uh, pictures which uh, first hit the world, the, the, the nudity, the dogs, and the subsequent 
there was a subsequent prosecution, of course, of the individuals who were directly involved. Now, from what I gather from what you say, they are actually doing something that was already authorized. Were they allowed or were their lawyers allowed to use that as a defense sure. in their cases? Um, I mean, on the first question on 24, the best article to read on that is, and you can get it on the web, is written by Jane Mayer in the New Yorker magazine on 24. If you just Google search those things, you'll get the article. And she tells the whole story of the close connections, or a large part of the story, of the close connections between the Bush administration and the producers of 24. It appears there are very close connections. Um, and many of the people in the Bush administration would go to events and screenings and private parties in relation to it. So there was, at the very least, a degree of connection as between the program makers and the Bush administration. And, you know, there are many people of the ilk who think these types of techniques are a good thing, who describe 24 as one of their favorite television programs. So I don't have hard evidence for it, but my hunch is the answer to your question is Absolutely, there are interconnections, and absolutely, there were not coincidences. And it suited the Bush administration very finely to have 24 being broadcast into Guantanamo um, by Fox Television in uh, October uh, 2002. I, I think that's now pretty clear. The, here's what I think happened at Abu Ghraib. The techniques of interrogation changed. Okay, and all these techniques that previously the US military had prohibited, hooding, uh, forced nudity, grooming, shaving of all body hairs, the use of dogs, um, I mean, all of the things that we see in the Abu Ghraib pictures were approved on the 14th of September in Baghdad for use in that field of operation. When techniques change, people in the community get to know about that. I don't think that the individuals who were subsequently investigated, charged, prosecuted, convicted, were directly applying the techniques as superior orders. I think what happened is their lamentable activities, which we saw in the photographs, were the result of a changed environment in which a sense was created that the United States was facing a particular threat and challenge that required certain measures to be taken, and these had been approved by senior military and senior political figures. So it created an environment, an enabling environment, in which this could happen. Now, in some of the cases in which there have not been charges brought, but which I think charges ought to be brought, there was direct reliance on these new regulations. The British cases often involve uh, cases concerning reliance on these techniques of interrogation. And of course, famously, although the new government has now published what Labour would not publish, namely the new uh, revised techniques of interrogation, neither the previous government nor this government has been willing to provide or make public the uh, techniques of interrogation that were um, approved for use by uh, the um, intelligence services that were applicable in 2002. A lot of people want to see that. And I think 
you know, the reason we haven't seen those uh, materials is consistent, at least with a conclusion, that there is something in those materials that would tend to indicate a certain green light was given. I'm not saying that was the case. I don't know it. I haven't seen those original uh, policy guidance on you know, interrogation of detainees abroad. But I suspect there is something in that that will be unhappy because it will enable a direct link to be established between those at the top, Foreign Secretary, Home Secretary, Prime Minister, and what happened on the ground. That has not yet been established. And that's something the judicial inquiry will have to look at. I saw a hand over here. Uh, yes, <coughs> gentleman in the second row. And, and then the lady at the back. So you've mentioned accountability. We know now that uh, none of the lawyers in the United States will be prosecuted. It doesn't look like any of them will be professionally disciplined. Um, you're an academic. Uh, if you were on the faculty at Berkeley, would you seek to have John Hughes' tenure taken away from him? Would you pass the mustard to him at a faculty lunch? Uh, Great question. Okay. Okay. So, um, Philippe, while you answer that, perhaps um, uh, that the microphone can go to the, the woman at the back. So, Philippe. Okay, right. Sorry, we'll do um, two questions. Yes. You made a reference early on in your talk about um, the last-minute apparent change of mind by Goldsmith on the legality of the Iraq War. I'd be very interested to know what your personal opinion is on the legality of that war. Um, the, the situation with the lawyers, they've come to be referred to as the Bush Six, thanks to um, uh, US media piece, are in fact the subject of a criminal investigation in Spain uh, by Judge Balthazar Garzon, who um, of course is famous for the Pinochet proceedings, although he faces a different set of difficulties in relation to other investigations that he has engaged in. So the upshot of that is basically none of these people can set foot outside of the United States. Now, that's not justice, that's not accountability, but it's not bad. I mean, <laughs> you know, it is a start. And when, it is a small world, and so people, you, one does have mutual friends. You know, it's sort of six degrees of separation in the legal world. So you'll have a friend of a friend of a friend who'll be a friend of Jim Haynes's. So and so, word of mouth gets round, and you're and you pick up stories that in his new job as a sort of deputy general counsel at Chevron, he cannot set foot outside the United States because he's bloody terrified that he's going to be arrested. And there is a real possibility that he would be arrested. So. The fact is, when these chaps, because they're all chaps, they're all men, wake up in the morning, they don't have quite the same spring in their step as they might otherwise have. They, they, you know, there's going to be something eating away at the back of their minds. And I can tell you, you may be a lawyer, you, 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 we know that when an individual is subject to the possibility of investigation, that has a real freezing effect on their sense of well-being. So a price is being paid. It's not that they've paid no price. Some of them have been unable to get jobs. It's remarkable. Alberto Gonzalez, former Attorney General of the United States, cannot get a legal job anywhere in the United States. His own law firm, Vincent and Elkins, would not take him back. I mean, it, incredible. David Addington. <laughs> David Addington, you know, general counsel to Vice President Cheney and then chief of staff when he replaced Scooter Libby cannot get a job anywhere, unemployable, cannot be employed. So it's not without consequences. And the Pinochet story 
sort of teaches us that strange things happen. You just can't predict. It took 25 years for Pinochet to be arrested. We, you know, we all remember, we lived through it. It takes a long time for a community to come to terms with its own wrongdoing and for other communities to spring into action. You know, we're still living with the Savile inquiry, you know, 40 years after the events. This week there was this incredible report of an ombudsman in Northern Ireland, a police ombudsman, telling the story of what had happened in Cloudy, of a local, you know, churchman having been involved, allegedly, in a bombing 40 years later. And the community is deeply affected by that 40 years on. These things do not go away, and you cannot predict what's going to happen. And that relates, I think, to the issue of Iraq and um, Mr. Blair. Uh, I should just say, to add to conclusion to that story, I've been lectured at Berkeley. I know John Yu. I'm an academic. The rules at Berkeley are that tenure means tenure. The only basis for removing John Yu from his tenured position at Berkeley, and he wasn't hired after he left the government. He left his, you know, he took some, you know, a couple of years off from Berkeley to go into government service. No doubt well-intentioned. And the only grounds, and I've spoken about this with the dean at Berkeley Law School, it, who is actually one of Obama's closest advisors, is that he has to have committed a criminal offence. And he has not been charged or convicted of, causing criminal, uh, of, of having committed a criminal offence. And so, you know, do I want to hang out with him and have lunch with him? No. Do I think he's entitled to stay in his teaching position? Yes. Do I recommend people to take his course? No. Do people take his course? No. His student numbers have plummeted. You know, you get seven or eight people, I'm told, taking his courses. So again, a price is paid. And a price is paid also by Tony Blair. Uh, I mean, it, it relates to the same issue. You know, uh, we've now seen the extraordinary paper trail of legal advices given by Peter Goldsmith. <laughs> July 2002, September 2002, December 2002, January the 14th, 2003, January the 30th, 2003, February the 12th, 2003, March the 7th, 2003, it's illegal. And then, whoa, all of a sudden, March 17th, whoa, all of, you know, yeah, totally, unambiguously, it's lawful. It doesn't stack up. It was plainly illegal. I don't think the Chilcot Inquiry will make that finding. I don't think they can make that finding because there are no lawyers on the Chilcot Inquiry, and so anything they say about legality, I think, is an utter irrelevance. What they can talk about is process. They can talk about the circumstances in which the Attorney General changed his advice. Some of the documents are shocking documents. Go and look at them yourselves. Go on to the Iraq Inquiry website. Okay? On the left-hand side, you'll see a column which says um, evidence. Click on that. Then click on declassified. Then click on Attorney General. And then click on the document of the 30th of January, 2003, a one-page memo from Lord Goldsmith to Tony Blair. In light of your upcoming meeting with President Bush tomorrow, I want you to uh, know my view on the legality of the war. Resolution 1441 does not authorize the use of force. You need a further resolution. Clear 
unambiguous. 14th, 30th of January 2003. Mischievously and wonderfully, the new government did not put out the original virgin copy from the Attorney General's office of the advice. They put out the number 10 copy. And the number 10 copy, as you'll see when you read it, is really worth having a look at. Very easy to find has a scroll, a scroll all over. They've put the number 10 scroll all over it. So the top left-hand corner, you see someone's written, clear advice from the Attorney General, need for further resolution. Who's that? David Manning, Mr. Blair's principal foreign policy advisor, went on to be our man in Washington. Next to that, we specifically said we did not, not underlined, need further advice this week. No. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Ma Matthew Rycroft. Who's Matthew Rycroft? Private secretary to Tony Blair. And then you go down the left-hand side, and right next to the bit where it says, Resolution 1441 does not authorize the use of force, someone has written, I just don't understand this. Okay. Who is that? It's Tony Blair. I know Tony Blair's writing. It's Tony Blair. What doesn't he understand? It's blindingly obvious. What he doesn't understand is why this tosser has put in writing <laughs> clear advice that the war is illegal. What happens the next day? I'll tell you what happens the next day because I've seen David Manning's memo of the 31st of January 2003 when he meets President Bush. The memo has not yet been made public. It's been written about in my book and it's been written about in the New York Times and it has been paraphrased and quoted from. Five page memorandum, bottom of page one, David Manning, who writes the memo, describes President Bush as telling Mr. Blair the bombing will start on the 10th of March with or without a second resolution. Bear in mind, as this is being said, Mr. Blair ought to have in his mind his Attorney General's advice of when, actually just yesterday. So, I can't claim to have forgotten it, it's pretty clear. What does the next paragraph of David Manning's memo say? It reports Mr. Blair told the president he was solidly with him. Okay? A, second res a further resolution would be good if it could possibly be achieved, but only as an insurance policy. In other words, boom, avoiding the legal advice given by his attorney general in the clearest terms. And against that background, I think it becomes blindingly obvious what happened between the 7th and the 17th of March 2003. Probably many of you in this room are not lawyers. You only need to know, you know, human foibles and personalities and weaknesses as to the circumstances in which unambiguity in one direction became unambiguity in a 180 degree different direction. And again, it's about the weakness of lawyers, I'm afraid. That's a theme that runs all the way through my work. Thank you. I know that there are other questions, but I'm under this real strict uh, timetable. Can I just say, uh, can I thank Philippe? Can I also just say, uh, you know, the work of Amnesty and of uh, Philippe will continue in terms of people being held to account. But please don't also forget that there are still something like 170 men in Guantanamo Bay. Shaka Armour. Uh, is in Guantanamo Bay. Shaka Armour was a British citizen, a British resident, married to a British citizen. His children are British citizens. Uh, and we need to make sure that he is brought back to the UK. 
There is a further British resident, Ahmed Belbacha, in Guantanamo Bay. We need to make sure he comes back. There are two British residents still in Guantanamo, and there are 170 men still in Guantanamo, despite uh, President Obama's uh, commitment to close it within a year of uh, becoming president. These campaigns will continue. Amnesty will continue to be uh, at the uh, heart of these campaigns, and we look forward to continuing to work with Philippe on these issues. And I look forward can, to working with Amnesty. Can we uh, please uh, thank Philippe for a brilliant lecture? Thank you. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk, along with a selection of videos.